You know, as someone that um, <clears throat> buys musical instruments and visits musical stores, one of the greatest gifts is the internet, you know, and, and it's not just that, it's not that just you can listen to a video of someone playing a guitar, you also can get a customer review of the store. And, you know, it's always since, you know, they were, they were fairly helpful or they let me try this or they came by, they, they, they let me know what's going on, or they, were, they didn't speak to me and they didn't do whatever, you know. And so I, I kind of take those things into consideration, especially when we're getting ready to spend thousands of dollars for the church. You know, I'm like, is this a place that we can trust to buy? Will they, will they do it? And then I, will they come back and give us good customer service? But I thought about it like, you know what? In reality, we all have customer service ratings for our friends. You think of it, do that mental Rolodex, you know? Susan does not return my text quickly. And Barbara gives bad advice. Tim, not very encouraging. Jason, very encouraging. And, you know, sends my text right back. You know, and I, we're, it's kind of tough for us because Danielle and I, my, our sister-in-law, worst texter in the world. She could be in the middle of a crisis and my husband would be like, please text her. She needs you. And you text her and like eight days later, she's like, oh, I just saw this. You know, and you're like, forget you, you know. So we give her like a half star rating. And I thought to myself, like, What's the guy, what's the father in this story? How's he going to rate his experience with Jesus? You know, number one, his, his, his rating, here's his rating coming down on Amazon. Went to go find him, he wasn't there. Two, staff not very helpful. When I finally did get to talk to him, it was very brusque. Then critical of me. <laughs> and then critical of how I raised my son. You know, and then, and then didn't even deliver right on time. Had to have one last convulsion. Jesus gets two and a half stars. You know, I, I don't know what it would have been like, but the point that I think about when I think about this text and this interaction with this man, it's one of the reasons why we know that the disciples and the early church did not get together and make this up to make Jesus look like this incredible, amazing, you know, wonderful, benevolent, all the time, whatever. But it's true. It's this story with, with it's not with its edges sanded off. You get the raw realness of what had happened. You can't make this up. The disciples are buffoons. Jesus is frustrated with what they're doing. There's actually someone that isn't just healed right away like that with just one wave of a hand. It's messier than that. And not only that, but you get this crowd of people that are against Jesus and against his disciples. And so this part of the scripture text comes at this very interesting juncture of time where you're coming down, the disciples are coming down, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus, off the mountain of belief at Mount Hermon, down into the valley of disbelief. Off the mountain of belief, down into the valley of disbelief. And so if you want to jump in and look at the text with me, turn your Bible, we'll look at Mark 9, starting with verse 14. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John in verses 14, 15, and 16 are descending from Mount Hermon. And, and the text tells us they're descending down and at the bottom of the mountain there is a crowd. And the crowd is made up of the disciples, people that are onlookers, and then scribes and religious leaders who we can tell from the text later on have come to dispute anything and everything that the disciples are doing. Especially given the fact that Jesus continues to heal people on the Sabbath and continues to have these run-ins with the religious leaders. 
And so they're waiting for Jesus down at the bottom. And when the crowd sees Jesus, they're in awe. And the text tells us they run to him. But in verse 16, Jesus says, what is all this arguing about? And we can tell from the way that the, that the Greek or the Aramaic is phrased that it is a question that is framed to the religious leaders. It is directed at the religious leaders. Why are you here arguing with my people? Why are you here arguing with my disciples? And so in verses 17 through 18, we get introduced to this father. And this father is led to Jesus, and he's led with just a spark of faith. If you're like me, you grew up hearing that awful, awful song, It Only Takes a Spark to Get a Fire Going. That is not true. It takes a napalm bomb to get anything going in the church. But this young man, this young father, he has a spark of faith. And it brings him to bring his son to Jesus. And when he brings him to Jesus, Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountains, and he gets his disciples, and he's met with defeat. Here I am in the spark of faith, I'm going to bring my son, who is both, probably both deaf and mute, but now, because of a demonic oppression or possession, is, is partly epileptic. And so he is thrown down on the ground, gnashing of teeth, all this kind of stuff, and his disciples can't heal him. The disciples are actually helpless in this text. We'll find out later on. And then you get this time where, you, where parents, you understand Jesus right now, just for a minute. As benevolent and as loving and as wonderful and sweet as you are to your kids, there's a moment where they push you too far. Well, it's not just that Jesus loses his cool. There is a reason why Jesus responds this way. And we'll find it out in the very last word of this pericope. But Jesus is genuinely frustrated. And we kind of go, whoa, this isn't my sweet, tender Jesus with the precious moment lamb over the shoulder. Holy cow, this sounds a little bit more like the driving the money changers out of the temple with the, with the cord and the whip. The disciples actually, if we, if we look back early in the text, verse 19 reminds us, the disciples actually had the authority in Mark 6, 7 to drive out demons. They had the authority. But Jesus is genuinely frustrating because they hadn't sought out the power in prayer. There was, there was, a, there was a reason. They didn't pray about it. They just kind of, to, to be all stars, here we are, Jesus isn't around. Here's our point. Here's our time to shine. You know, Bartholomew's like, no one knows my name. I'm going to step up here and do something great. I don't know what happened. But rather than stopping and praying about it, rather than, going, rather than saying, we don't have the power to do this, let's stop and pray and ask the Father, they just go, all right, demon, come on out. And Jesus reminds us down to the last verse in the text, you've got to pray about it. So verses 20, 21, and 22, then we get at the doorstep of the healing. The man has brought his son there. And the text tells us that in, in verse 21, the son's been like this since he was little. All of this son's life. And parents, I, I have been around some parents who have had children who have been born with infirmities. Children who have been born with something and they have been in hospitals. They have been in and out of just the Brenner. They've been in and out of, of Presbyterian. They've been in and out of specialists. And just the ache that you have for your child to be well. And here on the doorstep of healing in these verses... It throws, the, the demon throws him into another convulsion right here at the feet of Jesus. And so when verse 22 comes along and the man says to Jesus, if you can do something, there's two things about that. One, he says if because Jesus' followers have let him down. And here's the sobering part. When Jesus' followers let down people of the world, the doubt is not only the doubt that the people of the world not only have is on Jesus' followers, the doubt that they have is now visited on Jesus himself. So that's a sobering reminder that we as his representatives carry a lot of weight in what we do, say, and don't do. But then also as well, it's this very shred, if you can do something, if you can do something, 
if you can. And Jesus responds, and we think it's gruff in verse 23, if I can, if I can, I'm God. Nothing is impossible for me. But here in verse 23, an invitation. If I can, anything is possible if you believe. And there's never been a more honest answer in verse 24. In verse 24, I I believe. Help me with the weakness of my faith. Help me with my doubts. Notice that the man says, when Jesus says, if you believe, come on, anything is possible. The guy doesn't say, well, never mind then. We'll forget about it. He doesn't, because Jesus is inviting him. And so in the middle of that invitation, he brings this little, small kernel of faith. And Tim Keller says this a lot. It's not the size of our faith. It's the object of our faith. It's not the size of our faith. It's what we have faith in. It's not the strength of our faith. It's who we have faith in. And who we have faith in in Christ, we can bring a little, and he does amazing things with it. So verse 25 Ever seeking to veil his glory just from, just from the onlookers, just from the, just from the ones who are like, oh, what's Jesus going to do now? But really caring about that, he bring, brings them away, talks to them, and the very words of God from the mouth of God come out to this child. Demon, come out. And if you can imagine, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, security tape footage when, when robbers break into a place and they're, they're starting, to, starting to do something and then all of a sudden the alarm goes off and on the way out the door they smash stuff on the way out. It's kind of like that. On the way out, the demon throws the boy into a convulsion one last time and everyone goes, well gosh, he's dead now. He's dead now. What was the whole point? And you can, you can, you can audibly hear the Pharisees and the scribes that are there saying, ah, we knew it. Jesus was a fake Obviously, you can't be healing on the Sabbath and be real. We knew it. He's not real. He's dead. But I love where verses 26 and 27 end up on 27. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him up to his feet, and he stood up. And part of it is that Jesus didn't fail. Jesus always has the last word. Even when it looks like, in our eyes, it's failed, Jesus gets the last word. And so in verse 28, you can just imagine, I mean, like, I, I was a troop leader in Boy Scouts, uh, and, you know, we couldn't, we would go to a camporee and couldn't do something, and there's nothing more frustrating than being handed the little, the little fire starter bow and the fire starter stick and the fire starter thing, and everybody else is, like, doing this, and you see troop number five over here, and their fire is huge, and troop number 18 over here, and their fire is huge, and the Cobra Patrol or whoever those people are, and their fire is huge, and you're looking at your boys, and they're like, What's wrong with us? And then later on, when, when everybody else has got their medals and, you know, we're just, you know, having our s'mores because that's all we can do to make ourselves feel better. What did we do that didn't work? You know, it's like he spit on it, but then there's another thing. But and they were embarrassed. In verse 28, they're sheepish even. Why couldn't we do it? And so Jesus responds and he says, listen, in verse 29, because you didn't pray. You didn't pray. You stepped in there and forgot that, yes, you have the authority, but you didn't ask for the power. And that's one of the greatest problems of the church. We think we have the authority to represent Jesus. But do we pray for the power of Christ to do it well? And Jesus calls him out again. He says, you might have the authority, but you forgot to pray. And it only works if you pray.
I'm really intrigued by this last verse for a couple of different reasons. So just leave it up there the whole time. Verse 29. I want to talk a little bit about prayer. And if you were here on Wednesday night for the Ask Wednesday service, uh, introduce the topic of prayer for Lent. I'm going to repeat some of what I said on Wednesday night and add to it. You say, why do you repeat that if you said Wednesday night? First, some of you weren't there. Some of you that were there haven't done anything about it yet. So I'm just, I just want Lent for me and for you to be a focus on prayer. How do we renew? Jesus ends this text with that one word, prayer. And I want to reflect on prayer a little bit as a Lenten discipline because this is where the Lord's taking me and I think it's where the Lord's taking us together as a congregation. I want to ask the simple question, why don't we pray more? Why don't we pray? So a few uh, suggestions as I've reflected on that and reflected on this text. First of all, we don't pray more because we substitute other coping mechanisms. So when we face a problem, we figure out some other way to try to handle it. So maybe it's some chemical that we use or some addiction that we have. It's alcohol or social media or sex or pornography or food or exercise. If there's something you can put your finger on and say, when I'm, when I'm prone to pray, instead I do this, I shop. Or what, what is it that you do when you go like, I've got a problem and I should pray, but this makes it temporarily feel better? That's what you give up for Lent. Okay? So some people gossip you know, about a problem and said, well, I know I should take this to the Lord instead I'm going to talk to a lot, of, a lot of other people about it. The only problem with some of those addictions that you give up for Lent is the little exception clause in Lent that you can do it on Sunday, right? If you give up chocolate, you can have chocolate on Sunday. If it's gossip or pornography, you don't give, you don't, Sunday's not an exception, all right? You just give it up all the time. But you're asking the question, what is it that I tend to do when I know I should pray? about this. That's what you give up for Lent, at least to focus on how can I make sure that my, that my priority is on praying. So I'm just going to, a couple times in my part of this message, pause for just a moment. You can close your eyes if you want to, or you can uh, not. It's all right. But what is it that, where do you tend to go when you know this is something I should take to the Lord, and instead there's some other substitute for that? It's not too late to give up something for Lent that's getting in the way of prayer. So one reason that we don't pray is because we have other alternate coping mechanisms. Another reason that we don't pray is because we don't know what to say. So that can be true of novices, like I haven't prayed a lot, so I don't know what words to put together. It can also be true of those who are seasoned in prayer, because after a while, we've prayed some of the same things over and over again, and we need kind of a fresh approach, a reminder of how to pray or what to say. So uh, on Tuesday of this week, right before Lent, I had an email from one of my mentors from years past, a man by the name of Tim Laniak. And Tim said, you boil down prayer into two words, basically. All prayer is gratitude and trust. What I'm thankful for and asking God. So gratitude and trust. Well, I sort of reframed that on Wednesday night and said, prayer is basically my manners before God. Prayer is please and thank you. You can really boil all prayer down into thank you and please. So when you don't know what to pray, there is a very simple lesson to remind you. So you just start with thank you, God for who you are and what you've done, name some specific things, and there's the please part. Like, what is it that I 
want to ask God for. So again, sometimes we need to sort of go a little bit deeper than that, and I suggest that if you want a deep dive into prayer, we've got a wonderful church library with books and resources. Uh, Just go by the library. They've already identified some of those. Some were picked up on Wednesday night. Others were not. So why not make Lent a time to say, "I I need to reframe my prayer by thinking about how others have talked about prayer. But I also suggested this book that was given to me for Christmas by Greg and Abigail Hardy called Every Moment Holy. So this book takes different kinds of situations and just offers you words to put in in your prayers. So for example, this morning where I opened up the book, it was a liturgy for first waking. So you know you're supposed to pray when you wake up, but like what are you supposed to say? And I'm just going to read you. It's a relatively brief prayer to give you an idea of this particular resource, Every Moment Holy. So prayed this prayer in the words of someone else this morning. I am not captain of my own destiny, not even of this day, and so I renounce anew all claim to my own life and desires. I'm only yours, O Lord. Lead me by your mercies through these hours, that I might spend them well, not in harried pursuit of my own agendas, but rather in good service to you. Teach me to shepherd the small duties of this day with great love, tending faithfully those tasks you place within my care, and tending with patience and kindness the needs and hearts of those people you place within my reach. Nothing is too hard for you, Lord Christ. I deposit now all confidence in you that whatever these waking hours bring, my foundations will not be shaken. At day's end, I will lay me down again to sleep, knowing that my best hope is well kept in you. In all things, your grace will sustain me. Bid me follow, and I will follow. Amen. So sometimes someone else's prayers just help you know what to say. And if you say, well, I'm not into those, you know, human man-made prayers or whatever, well, great. You've got a whole book of prayers in your Bible right smack in the middle of it, 150 Psalms. Borrow the words of others. That's why they're there to help you know what to pray. So what I've done is I've put that together in a little journal that uh, has a lot of blank pages But I've put together every day for Lent, I'm writing a thank you prayer and a please prayer, writing out in full sentences. So the thank you prayer on Friday, for example, was thank you God for sleep, because honestly with my post-op recovery, I haven't been getting very much. And it makes you appreciate sleep more. So why does God give us sleep? So you write out, I wrote out, a prayer of thanks for sleep. And in the same vein, I wrote out a prayer for those who live in constant pain, Because my pain is temporary. It's going away. At least that's what the doctors tell me. It's going to go away. But I I think about all the people who just live constantly with pain. So I've been writing out a thank you prayer and a please prayer. Every day is my goal during Lent. So if you don't know what to say, there are a few helps for you. And the third point I want to make about why we don't pray really brings us right back to this scripture text today and how this story ends. So the third reason we don't pray is because we misunderstand prayer. Another way to frame that is we think prayer doesn't work. I've tried it, and it didn't work. All right? Anybody ever been there? I know you have. So I think this story in Mark chapter 9 is designed to address exactly that issue, misunderstanding prayer. Prayer is not about effort. It's about trust. Prayer is not about cornering God. It's about asking. It's the please. 
Prayer is not about demanding from God. It's about releasing whatever it is that I'm facing to God. So let me tell you why that particular lesson came home for me in this passage. In this verse, this kind can only come out by prayer. If you happen to be looking at your Bible, you will notice a footnote. It occurs in almost every single Bible. Sometimes it's even in brackets in the text itself. And the footnote says that some ancient manuscripts say, by prayer and fasting. So without going into the technicalities of how people copied the Bible, uh, what happens is, during the days when all Bibles had to be hand copied, some people say there's something missing here. So I'm going to add to what Jesus said, because I really think what he was talking about is you need to prayer with great effort, with intensity. So this is their version of saying, it's not just about saying words, it's about Uh, It's about what you do. So if you pray hard enough, God will act. And just using the word prayer is not enough. So some scribe or a series of scribes said, I'm going to add in the word and fasting. Now let me give you the modern versions of this. When you come across a problem and you say, we need to really pray about this. That means that my effort in prayer needs to be ramped up. Or when you say, we need to get a lot of people praying about this. God's probably not going to listen to one or two prayers, but God will listen to a lot of prayers. Or let's have a 24-7 prayer chain. Now, I'm not against any of those things, because what they do actually is they get more people doing what prayer is supposed to do, and that's teaching us to depend and trust. But if the theology behind it is, we need to show more efforts, because with the more effort we bring to prayer, the more likely God is to answer our prayer, that's when we show we've misunderstood prayer. Because prayer really becomes about sort of the quantity of my effort or the quality of my effort will corner God and then he'll have to answer because so many people are praying so hard. That's what this story is designed to, uh, to correct. So what we have is a situation where the disciples go through with their own experience and they do what they did before and it doesn't make a difference. So... When Jesus says at the end, this kind can only come out by prayer, there are some things that happen every day in your life that are simply extensions of what you've done so often that they become routine. And by experience, you say, if I do the same thing again, and maybe even it's praying, then God will come through again. So what I've done before is probably going to work all over again. That's what the disciples were doing. We've cast out demons before. We know how it works. We're going to do it again. We're going to say the same words. We're going to use the same gestures or whatever. And Jesus is saying, when you make it about what you've done, about your effort, you're missing the whole point. When you make it about, I'm going to release this situation to God, that's what prayer is. It's about humility and saying, God, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to bring this situation before you. So let me show you where this is specifically in the text. You say, where does prayer come in this story? The man, when he comes to Jesus after the disciples have failed, twice uses the word help. The first time he says, You know, if you can do anything, please take pity and help us. The word help. The second time he does it is he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Help is the key word for this man's prayer. Help is the key word in any prayer that we pray. Now, this is not the kind of help where it's like, uh, 
teenage son or daughter, would you come help me do the dishes, all right? That's not the kind of word help this did. This help, this word help is actually more like a man is drowning in a pond, and he's gone down several times, and the last time in one last gasp, he comes up and he says, help! Okay, this urgency is actually in this word behind the word help. So what's going on there? What's going on there is I have exhausted every other resource, and I know that nothing can be done about this unless somebody else gets involved. Help. This is the word the man uses when he comes to Jesus. This is his prayer. And this is what Jesus means when he says, this kind can only come out by prayer. And you say, well, I thought Jesus said, everything is possible to the one who believes. He did say that. But do you really think that what Jesus meant to convey is anything that your heart can conjure up that God could do if I put words to it that God is obligated to do that? Do you really think that God would go like, if you want a Mercedes-Benz, everything is possible to him who believes? If you really want to travel to Saturn and, uh, and, and be teleported there, anything is possible to him who believes? If that's really your theology, that what Jesus means is anything I name is going to happen if I believe enough, then I'm just going to say what Jesus said. How long do I need to put up with you? That is not what's going on here. What's going on here is that Jesus is saying, here were the disciples thinking that everything that they had done before would fix it. Prayer is not about fixing it. Prayer is about calling on the only one who can change anything. And what God often does is he changes us in the midst of our pleas for help. So anything is possible to him who believes, even living with whatever it is if God doesn't change it. That's the lesson that is underlying this entire story. Prayer is not about what you do. Prayer is about what God does. So when we misunderstand prayer and we turn it into some way that we force God's hand, then we've missed the whole lesson of this text. It's not about prayer and fasting. It's not about the intensity of your effort. It's about the release into the hands of the only one in whose hands life becomes more meaningful and significant. So I love the quote that I put on the left-hand side, the top of your order of worship, and I'll just close with that. Prayer is unanswered only if we have dictated the answer in advance. Would you pray with me, please? And just in a moment of quiet, lift before the Lord whatever that thing is that for you is that struggle. Why doesn't God do this? And just turn to him and say, help, help. Help in whatever way you choose to help. Help me keep clinging to you, keep trusting you, keep looking to you.